Hello and welcome back to episode 28 of the Hidden Things and Hidden Things, where we talk about chapter 19 and 20 and the epilogue and all that kind of good stuff. Oh my goodness, all this stuff that has happened, all these things resolved the A plot and or the B plot, depending on how you look at it, and dragons and phagos and all that stuff. Um, this was probably one of the hardest... Finishing a story, in case anybody doesn't know, this is really hard. And it's not just getting to the end and actually writing enough for there to be a whole story there and like, you know, writing 50,000 words or 75,000 words or 80,000 words or 180,000 words. That's hard. But finishing, wrapping things up is, for me, very difficult. And part of that, I think most of it actually, when you're writing a story like this, is you need to explain stuff, but at least for me, you need to maintain some of the wonder and mystery and magic of the setting and the story that you've been telling. So how do you explain what's happened without suddenly everything being about as exciting as a baseball score? I think the first couple of times I ended, I redid the ending and people who had read it were like, no, it's, you know, it's fine. I don't really know what's happening, but you know, it's fine. And you have to get past that. You have to get to the point where it's like, oh, oh, now I get it. Oh, cool. Um, so many people didn't know. I, I heard, I've heard this so many times where people was like, I had no idea that Mikey had been the one that killed Josh. I'm like, I'm still surprised by that because I actually wrote a scene where Josh kills Mikey. I mean, it's, in, it's on like page three. That to me was not the mystery. The mystery was... Why did Mikey kill Josh? And we think we know, maybe if we think about it, that it's because he's jealous and doesn't want him to leave. And that's what, after she talks to Sandy and she sees the fear and the, you know, the longing to be someplace else or to be something other than what she is and, and that jealousy and that fear, that's her insight into Mikey and she thinks that she gets it. And it's probably not wrong, but it's not the whole story. So that was actually the mystery. It wasn't who, but why. We get to the end and we think we know the why and then we realize that we actually, there's actually a why past that. It took me a long time to get to the point where I could explain that why inside the story. It wasn't the easiest thing in the world. Most of that conversation with Calliope and Mikey has always been there, but yeah, there's, there's little bits and pieces of it that were a long time coming out before I could straighten it out. The scene, however, with Josh and Fagos, Vicus, and Maka, pretty much exactly the same from the first draft to the very last one. Very, very little has changed in that scene. And even the fight with Walker was pretty much identical. It's always, it's always been exactly that. It was mostly just the weird stuff in the house, pretty much the conversation in the last room that I fiddled with over and over and over again. When she gets into the hotel room and she walks around the bed and sits there and she picks up the phone and she calls somebody and you'll see the way it's timed, like it's a long way into that call before you realize who it was that she called. And she says, mom, yeah, it's me. I changed the M in mom at the beginning of mom to a T and then back to an M and then back to a T and then back to an M and then back to a T and then back to an M probably a dozen times during various revisions because I couldn't, 
I didn't know which thing I wanted to say, you know, that she'd gotten that relationship kind of, she was ready for that or that it was her family. Now, when I actually stopped and thought about it and compared the two things, it was obvious that it needed to be her mom. But I played with it for because I didn't know for a while how important. You know what, it, what finally decided me? It was when my editor, Kate Nensel, really asked me to go into more depth with the family. And I spent a lot more time with them. As soon as that revision was done and I got back to that scene and I was doing revisions there, I'm like, oh, well, she calls mom. Obviously, she calls mom. I mean, that's, duh. Um, Tom will wait and he, and he will, he'll wait. And when she gets back home, she can straighten all that stuff out. But the person that she calls when everything is done is her. She's been wanting to call her mom for 10 years and now she finally can. So if you were asked like, you know, why is the dragon willing to give up his identity to Calliope to give to Phagos? Knowing, sitting, you know, standing right there, knowing what that Phagos is going to ultimately be who ends up with it. I think that goes back, if I was going to explain that one piece, and it's not, I do try to figure out, you know, at least provide the answers to people. And now I think that one's pretty obvious. I think the answer comes in the goblin caves with Vicus, kind of obliquely, because we have that oath thing and he feels compelled by that oath. It's a debt. Walker did him a favor and he agrees that he's going to do a favor in turn. Debts have weight, not as much or far more than they do for regular slobs like you and me. So there is a debt there. Calliope didn't just change and sort of re-enliven and reinvigorate and, you know, sort of interject change into Maka. She did it for dragons, like all of them. Now, there's a certain futility here thinking, well, if that's true and that's such a wonderful thing, then why would you give up the name if you know it's going to go to Phagos and they're going to be wiped out of existence anyway? You don't necessarily, maybe, you know, hope springs eternal and maybe you think that's not exactly what's going to happen. Or maybe it's not going to happen soon. Or maybe it won't affect all of them. Or blah, blah, blah. So maybe the dragon thinks, you know, this isn't maybe the complete end of the world. We know from Mikey's turnout that it was sort of the end for that. And it would be a shame to lose dragons. One of my favorite things to hear from readers on having finished the book is that when they, when I ask, when we talk about it, if we get a chance to talk about it, they send me a message or anything is that last, the scene with Joshua and, and Phagos and stuff is, you know, I didn't know what Calliope was going to pick, what she was going to do. I just didn't know. And what she did pick surprised me. But at the same time, I understood it and I understood why she did, why she chose what she chose. But I would have understood if she did, had chosen the other thing too. I would have completely understood that. That to me is me nailing it. If I did one thing right in the story is you didn't know exactly what was going to happen at the end. You weren't entirely sure. And you were satisfied not only with the way it turned out, but you were conceptually satisfied with the, with the other way that it could have turned out. It would have been a very different story. and I. To my mind, there's not another way the story could have gone. It would have undone literally everything else in the story. People ask me what the story's about, and then sometimes I'll say grief, dealing with your family, and just, I guess the message, if there is a message, is, is accepting change and, and saying this is the thing that is going to happen. And you either accept it and you deal with it and you move on, or you put your feet down and close your eyes and put your hands over your ears and scream, no, 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 and refuse to go on past that. No matter how horrible the thing is that happens, that's not healthy. I don't mean to be preachy. It, it, it's, that's 
this whole story is me telling myself that. Like I said, when I think one of the first things I ever told about this story is at that point in time, when I started the story, I'd never had anybody die on me. Callie says the exact same thing at the end. It had been the thought that had been lurking around in the back of my head the entire time. What's going to happen? Because the longer you go without losing somebody, the higher the chances that that's going to happen. So a lot of that is just me, I, I guess, picking at the wound to see how that's going to feel a little bit. There's a lot of emotion in the last couple of scenes. They don't seem like when you read them on paper and you prep to do this audio recording, they don't seem like they're going to be that tough. And they suck. They're so hard because there's so much emotion in there and there's so much guilt. It isn't just the guilt of I let this happen or anything like that. It's the guilt that you feel from saying I'm moving on. And it isn't because I love you less. It's because I can't not move on because that would be worse. And knowing that whoever you're moving past, unless they're complete assholes, are going to be okay with that. This is the first and you know, kind of the last time that Calliope refers to Josh as her best friend. Which he is. I mean, obviously. Anybody looking at it from the outside, anybody who knows her is going to know that. But she doesn't say it, and she doesn't say it till the end. And I think that is one of the telltales that inform us that she's accepted that he's gone. Because she's had barriers up. She's had guards up. She can't say things like, you're my best friend. Because he's married to somebody else. And they used to date. And they used to be in a band. And they have all this history. And you can't... It's already complicated. So you don't want to make it worse by admitting stuff. Because stuff is complicated. And stuff is hard. It would have been great if she could have said that before he was gone. But sometimes it takes something bad happening to say, I need to accept that that's who he was to me. Once you get through all the other crap that he was that, that complicate things, that's what it ends up boiling down to. The reason that they stay close and they stay working together and they stay friends is because they're not just friends, they're best friends. It's a shame, I will say, in retrospect, that they, that they didn't work out because I think in the scenes that we see with them when they were together, like really together, they worked. And they worked not just because they were young and foolish and full of starry eyes and Valentine's hearts floating around their heads and all this other kind of stuff because they were really good friends. They really just flat out liked being around each other. They made each other laugh. And that's a good, if you're going to start from a place, I guess, start out from a place where you're making each other laugh. That's a good question. Isn't Mikey just going to kill again until he gets, well, okay. He's not going to just kill again because he needed Josh and Josh is gone. He doesn't have other family. Some of this is a family thing. At this point in time, it's, there, there's some connection there. He wants somebody with him, and he, he can't just be a serial killer's victim that hangs out with him for the rest of eternity. It could be, yes, blah, blah, blah. He's kind of crazy, yes. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. And I'm not saying the guy's not crazy. I'm saying that from a certain metaphysical point of view, it just flat out wouldn't work if he tried it with somebody else. He's going to do more self-damaging things, yes, in the hopes that somebody finally takes him out that that's going to be or because somebody actually said a bald face maybe he rejects that and he has to find some other like maybe calliope ruined it by saying you just want to die maybe he can't do that anymore i don't know i have thought about whether or not we'll see mikey again and the answer is very definitely maybe he is not a safe individual calliope's line where she says you're a monster actually more than any of the rest of them is true. He's the worst and he's out there. 
I won't say what he's going to do or what he isn't doing, because I, I don't know if I could honestly answer that question right now. I have to kind of write the story to find out. But I'll tell you one thing, he ain't going to stay in the house anymore. He's out. The other thing that I want to mention, and people always think that this is kind of a throwaway line, I want to remind everybody that I really liked writing Lauren and Calliope. And I want to point out a line that everybody seems to think is a throwaway line, partly because I sort of make it sound like one in the last scene with Josh and Kelly, where he asks Kelly, will you look out for her? That's not a throwaway line. He is asking for something big. He's asking for something bigger than Calliope realizes that it is, that really probably anybody standing there knows it is for very important reasons. I won't say a lot more about that except to say Josh really wanted a family. Reading the book was weird. First of all, I didn't expect it to take five freaking months. And I've read lots of it. A lot of my test for whether or not the book works is reading it aloud to make sure it actually works. And it still leads to what will probably be a super cut in the blooper reel of me saying, who writes this crap? You still get scenes like that. Reading through it as a whole like this, back to back to back, you do learn some things. Discussing it, you learn some things. But it did raise a question that I hadn't really thought about before is what's the A plot and what's the B plot? Is so much of it is exactly as it always has been. And then there's been stuff that's been added. And it's a really interesting thing to raise the question as to what's the A plot and what's the B plot when what could conceivably be this secret hidden A plot of Calliope resolving her stuff with her family was something that was not really there in any way, shape, or form in the first draft of the story. For that reason alone, I would say that that's the B plot because it just it wasn't there before. And so for me... The A plot is, is Calliope dealing with loss and learning that she has to let go and move on. So I don't think of it so much as a B plot as like a, a parallel layer to the same, same storyline. I had never really thought about it before, but I'll say this. Every single time I read the scenes with her and her family, I like them more. By all rights, I should be sick to death of this book by this point. I've read it dozens of times. I've revised it dozens of times. I've now done the audio thing for it. I should never want to see these words again. And I actually just keep liking it a little bit more. I would like it if I didn't run across paragraphs where I used the descriptive term leathery twice in one sentence. That would be awesome. I would like to have not made those mistakes, but that's part of the fun of these things. This is an artifact complete with flaws. This is another little thing that runs through my head and will probably crop up in other stories and stuff like that, where she says, you died because of me. And he's like, excuse me, what? And it's not because of her. She gets tied into it because of what he did, but it's not because of her. It isn't because this quest has to happen. He dies, and as a result, there's an opportunity for this whole thing to happen. But that doesn't mean that that's why he died. It doesn't mean that that's why Mikey did what Mikey did. We're all stars in our own private story, right? But we don't really think about that from day to day because honestly, we can't think at that meta level where we realize that all the other 75,000 people within earshot of us are all main characters, you know, in their own story. They're extras in our story because 99.9% of the time we have to think from our point of view. That's just, that's how we're wired and that's a feature, not a bug. It is a fascinating thing to go out and go do a little people watching something. And watch a couple or watch uh, a parent and their kid or watch just somebody by themselves and imagine what their story is. Move the camera around behind, like just over their left shoulder for a while 
And imagine what it's like to see the world where that person is the center of the whole thing. And you're just an extra who happens to be creepily staring at them from across the park. It is a hell of a thing to do that. And maybe that's just one of those crazy writer things. Calliope understandably thinks this is about her because from her point of view, it is about her. Everything's happening to her. She is the one getting shot. So she feels survivor's guilt to a certain extent, but she feels guilt about the fact that this happened in the first place because it does, to a certain extent, kind of feel like it's on her. But that part of it's not her story. That's the part where Josh is the main character and Mikey's the villain or... And Mikey's the main character in his story, which is a sad, depressing-ass story that I am never going to write. You know, Maka gets to have his story, too. One of the fun things I get to do with the short stories coming up is I get to do, um, in the Little Things collection, I get to do some of that stuff where I get to move the camera around. So we get to have a story from Maka's point of view, and we get to have a story from the point of view of a goblin. And I get to play around a little bit with that, and you guys get to play around with me some, so... I don't think Calliope feels used by Josh in all of this. You know, my play paid off. He needed somebody and he, yes, he wrapped her up on this. Yes, she got shot, all the blah, 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 blah. But there's definitely good things that happened to her. And when you boil right down to it, the reason that he went to Calliope is because she was the one that he believed he could count on to do the right thing. Beyond anybody else, he trusted her with this thing. Which isn't to say he couldn't have trusted Lauren, but it would have been a damn different story if it had been Lauren. He's got to trust Lauren with some other stuff. Because what he's trusting her with is that she'll come for him and then that she'll let him go, given the opportunity to not let him go. He needs, the deal with Mikey is that she'll give him up. He believes, he's betting that she'll give him up. Push comes to shove. Where Mikey did not do that when it was his turn. And... Basically bets everything on that because essentially what happens at that point in time, and I'm not a big afterlife guy, but in this particular surrounding or whatever, here's what happens if she doesn't. Josh doesn't leave. Maybe Fagos undoes it and brings him back, but those agreements matter, right? Those debts and those oaths matter. So maybe it doesn't matter if Fagos brings him back. It's one of those monkey paw things. Fago says, okay, you're back. And then Josh sighs and walks into the house because he's now there forever. He's locked in that shitty decaying wallpaper coming off the walls house with his monster little brother, who isn't even really his little brother anymore, and whispering voices that don't know how to be children. And that's where he is forever because that's what she does. Because she's not willing to let go of him when he's gone. And that's... That doesn't just do something to the person who won't let go. It does something to the thing that you won't let go. And symbolically, I guess, if you want to get into whole, you know, allegory, symbology, crap that I don't really care for very much, that's the way that it's represented in this particular story is what would happen is Josh would be stuck in that, in that hell with Mikey forever. That's what she would have done. Well-meaningly, but that's what she would have ended up doing. I don't know if I've ever really explained that thing before. So, hey. Bonus to you guys, the real hidden things and hidden things. What would have happened if she'd have done something else? It wouldn't have been as awesome as she might have hoped. We're wrapping up. This is the final recording of, although we're going to go back and do some other recording stuff, the voice for Mikey changed halfway through the book because I realized I was doing it wrong. So we need to re-record stuff and there's going to be mistakes and all this other kind of stuff. But the principal audio is done and we're going through edits now and stuff like that. So we're going to start seeing podcasts. And by the time you hear this, all the podcasts will be done and the book will actually be out and all that sort of stuff. 
but this is where we are right now. So I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank Tim for putting up with, oh my God, so many takes on some of this, holy shit, who wrote this crap lines. And obviously, uh, thank my family for putting up with me disappearing every other night to come over here and record for five months. And, you know, my wife, my kids, my family, and everybody who funded on the Kickstarter and everything else like that. You guys are the best, and you made this happen, and it simply would not have been without you the way that it is now. And as much as I have whined about having to do this hidden things and hidden things part, it's probably one of my favorite parts of doing the whole thing. So, because who doesn't like to talk about their crap that they've done? Hey, not me. All right. And we're done. <laughs>